Welcome to Social Distance Assistance. I'm Kelly. And I'm Jean. Well, it is getting harder and harder to stay in our small corner of the world, namely our house, day in and day out. Don't get me wrong, I am not about to escape to the beach with a hundred other people. I don't need to eat brunch on a patio. I don't remember what a haircut feels like. And frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Not until there's a vaccine. Thank you very much. But I would love to see some friends. Have a dance party. And I know you would too. Yeah, home is great, but I really want to see my friends. You get it. Our family has talked a little bit about what it would mean to expand the pod. That is, merge our home with another family's home so that we can hang out, trade childcare, share food. But it's still a little scary right now. It'll take some baby steps and a whole lot of work to organize. Luckily for some folks, they've had expanded pods to begin with. Nice, so we're sat here on your, what would you call this, a veranda? Deck. A deck, the deck. deck. This is Donna Wright and Dan Boyden. And we've just had a lovely breakfast there that you oh, could... Oh, what was, was it called? The, yeah, what was the name of the breakfast? Shakshuka. Shakshuka. Which we got writer. off YouTube. They're sitting outside Donna's apartment in London, England. And now we've got a cat balancing on the yeah. fence. There's a cat. A cat. Yeah. It's not our cat. Not our we cat. don't have a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Donna's lived in this building for a year and a half. At the moment, I live in a place called West Dulwich. Um, it's very green and leafy, but still kind of quite busy with a bit of a village feel. I know that sounds a bit odd. It's in an old Victorian building, so it's got a red brick front face with lots of ornaments and um, got a really nice outdoor back garden. I mean, I was, I was really scared going into this. I live on my own. I'm quite a social person. I am lucky that I have quite a few friends around and living within you know the neighborhood or walking distance but it was just oh my god i'm not going to be able to hug anybody for months what is the human contact that i'm going to have um and i was really scared about it really scared about feeling lonely and and just not having that kind of physical interaction with my friends Dan, his wife Laylee Reese Evans, and their son Woody moved into West Delage in January after spending a year living in a skyscraper in Tokyo. We lived in Japan for a year. I didn't know many people and we just had each other and didn't really have, you know, that many friends or family around. We were excited about connecting with friends and, yeah, not feeling so far away from people. Quite quickly after we got back... The pandemic kicked in, so we were back in a situation where we were kind of isolated again. Yeah, Londoners definitely don't really, as a rule, connect with their neighbours on a personal level. I think everybody's just so busy, everyone's got their own agenda. Donna was very sweet when we put a postcard underneath the door and she wrote one back and introduced herself. I think a friend of mine made a very sarky comment. She's like, I knew Donna would make new friends yeah. in the lockdown. Part of the reason Dan and Laylee sent the postcard was their two-year-old son, Woody. Yeah, we were aware that a loud, shouty, jumpy two-and-a-half-year-old could not be the kind of most appealing new 
upstairs neighbour. So we wanted to reach out and just say, look, we're here. Um, and it felt like that was a, I guess, a nice start to the building of the of the friendship. Actually, having children around is very stabilising, and at, mm. you know, time like this where stuff is so uncertain, and it's kind of like I wait there, and I can hear the little knock on the door, Donna, <laughs> and it's like, hey, the best part of the day <laughs> when he's arrived. <laughs> I mean, I like you too, too, but you know, comes chucking in, all little chipper, happy man. Um, because running in the garden, we have a little look at the wriggly worms and the snails, and we don't like snails, um, and pull out some radishes every now and then. And he's just been sort of this really fun person to get to know. Yay. You say night-night, Donna. Night-night, Donna. We love you lots. Love you lots. In terms of how we've helped each other during quarantine, I think we've given each other what we think the other one might need. Donna has a really beautiful garden and we have a toddler and no garden, so she's been amazing at allowing us to come and use her garden. And Woody loves to run around and play football and he's he needs space. So we were really lucky that Donna was so um, generous and, and she gave us a set of keys. We've helped plant some of the uh, stuff that is now growing. We've had barbecues and we've looked out for each other uh, at a time where it's felt like, even though physically people have been quite distant and quite disconnected and quite isolated, that I think socially people are finding creative ways of, of connecting. And we've had our front doors open and been sharing um, shopping chores and had some great barbecues together, um, been getting into gardening, which has been fantastic. Thank you. From our side, like, thank you for kind no. of keeping, you know, opening your door. And again, it's like the literal and the kind of sort of figurative, you know, it's been, it's, it's felt very, uh, yeah, just very yeah. kind of you. So thank you. No, it was very kind of you guys to look after an old lady. <laughs> and it's been such a joy. I've had so much fun through this. Yes, we Yes. Can I pick out? Oh, yes, actually, you can pick out the radish. The radish has got really big. Go for it, dude. And I think the lockdown has just shown us all that actually we need to slow down a bit, at least it has for me. And with that slowing down comes noticing more, taking more time for people. And that obviously includes your neighbours. And now that those relationships are built, I think they will, they'll remain, I hope. I think it will be a really good thing for human relationships. Our show today is about home and all of the ways we've defined it during quarantine. A place to slow down and recover, a place to work, a place to care for family, a place to shelter. We'll talk about the homes we have and the homes we make, like Donna and Dan and Laylee and Woody. We'll hear from a group of women in San Francisco who help people without homes find a safe place to live. We'll bring you stories of a group connecting doctors, nurses, and other medical providers across the country with RVs that they can use as temporary homes. 
and we'll talk to a formerly incarcerated person who's helping people in jails and prisons get information about how they can protect themselves behind bars. Before we start the show, we want to tell you a story and make a dedication. While we're thinking about how privileged we are to have a home to shelter in, we're also thinking about and saying the names of people who aren't safe at home. Today's episode is dedicated to Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old black EMT and emergency room technician. You might not know her name yet, but you'll probably hear it alongside George Floyd's as protesters across the country call for an end to police violence. In March, Brianna was killed by police in her home in the middle of the night in Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville police had already arrested the main suspect in their case earlier that day. But a detective said that one of their suspects had used Brianna's address to receive a package. Neighbors say they didn't hear the police give any warning that they were coming into Brianna's home. They had a no-knock warrant, meaning that they had permission from a judge to enter at will without identifying themselves. Brianna's partner, Kenneth Walker, thought someone was trying to break in and leapt up to defend her, firing a gun at the intruders. Police returned fire and hit Brianna at least eight times. At that point, Kenneth still didn't know who they were and actually called 911, saying, Somebody kicked in the door and shot my girlfriend. Kenneth Walker was arrested and charged with attempted murder of a police officer, though that charge has since been dropped. The three officers at the scene have been reassigned but not charged with a crime. Brianna Taylor's mother is suing those three officers, and no packages were found at Brianna's house. While protests across the country were ignited in response to murders in the street, protests in Louisville are also a response to Brianna Taylor's murder at home, a place where she should have been safe. If you'd like to be a helper right now and you aren't able to protest, we suggest you donate to your local bail fund. In jail, close proximity and limited access to hot water and masks make it easy for COVID to spread. Helping to pay protesters bail makes sure they can get home sooner. So our new way of living is pretty much just staying home all the time. We go to the park every once in a while or go for a bike ride, but otherwise we're hunkered down in our house. But for people without a permanent home, that version of sheltering in place isn't possible. San Francisco is home to over 8,000 unhoused residents. Nearly twice as many unhoused people have died already in San Francisco this spring, compared to last year. It's really hard to say how many of those deaths are COVID-related, but we know for sure it's hard to stay safe from COVID when you've nowhere to reliably shelter in place. The city of San Francisco placed over 1,000 unhoused people in hotel rooms since the beginning of the pandemic. But that's a fraction of the number who need them. Help is coming too slowly for a group of four community organizers, all women, in one neighborhood called the Bayview. Producer Nina Sparling has a story of how they took matters into their own hands to provide shelter for their vulnerable neighbors. I have a Toyota RAV 497. The great thing about it is that the seats, they go down 
all the way down. I kind of set it up kind of like a bed. I put comforters on the bottom to kind of cushion it. Yvette de Lozada has been living in her car for the past two years. She lives in the Bayview, one of San Francisco's last low-income neighborhoods. It's a historically Black community that's gentrifying, like the rest of San Francisco. Yvette parked there, mostly near the stadium where the San Francisco Giants used to play baseball. She learned how to work with a tough situation. Then, COVID-19 hit. It was scary when the COVID-19 came out and I was out on the street. I didn't know if it was something that you can catch, like being out here. Uh, You had to be inside in order to be safe. Yvette sheltered in her car as much as she could, and she went where she's always gone for support, a neighborhood organization called Mother Browns that helps out unhoused residents. Mother Browns is the resource my resource place. I shower there, I do laundry there, I eat there morning and for dinner. Um, if it wasn't for Mother Brown's, I don't know how I would have done it. I mean, Mother Brown's pretty much saved me. Gwendolyn Westbrook runs Mother Brown's and a couple of other social programs in the Bayview. She knew right away how dangerous COVID and the ripple effects from closing shelters and forcing more people onto the streets would be for the people she serves. I came to work one morning after this crisis had started, when I got to the door, it was like 15 people crowded in the doorway trying to stay warm. More and more people started coming in to Mother Brown's for a hot meal every day, and many of them had nowhere to spend the night, nowhere to shelter in place. That's when it came up, what should we do? Gwendolyn started talking with three other women who have been trying to get a permanent shelter built in the neighborhood for years. Michelle Pierce, Maria Victoria Rosales, and Gloria Berry. I was kind of joking when I said, well, the park was the largest place where we could put people. The park is what locals call MLK Park. There's a baseball diamond, a lawn, and a now-closed public pool. A few years ago, Gloria, one of the women Gwendolyn was working with, was homeless herself, and she knew how important it was to act quickly, especially in the Bayview. Black people are disproportionately affected by this COVID-19. We clearly have more health issues, the cancer rates, the asthma rates. It just bothers me that more concentrated effort isn't made to save Black lives. Gloria wasn't about to wait for her city to find hotel rooms and case management services and all the rest. People needed somewhere to shelter in place right away, And Gloria liked the idea of using the park. So we decided to set up a tent site. We were so ambitious, we set up about 50 tents, and it was so beautiful. We had stakes, and then we had the rope, so people could have clear boundaries of this is your area. Gwendolyn, Gloria, Michelle, and Maria didn't ask permission from the city or go through any official channels, but they did follow the best public health guidelines. A handful of people came and asked to stay that first night. Here's Maria reporting live the day after they set up the tents. Hi everybody, this is Maria. I'm here at MLK Park. So yesterday, me and a few friends came down and created 51 spaces. They're 24 feet apart with six feet pathway. But the city and its regulations were close behind. Early this morning, Park and Rec came in and took down 31 spots. Uh, My friend, I'm sorry, seems to think that the ranger will come back and try to get people out. He was looking for occupants. The women didn't really see any other option other than to pack up and come up with a new plan. We're in a crisis. This is an emergency. 
we don't have the luxury of having parking lots in our neighborhood. We don't have a little grass field someplace where people we can pitch tents. The only place we had in Bayview was Martin Luther King Park, where we could do it right. Gwendolyn tried to start a conversation with the city about getting permission to have the tents in the park. But after two weeks, nothing had changed. So the women put up the tents a second time without that permission. Word started to spread, and dozens of unhoused people registered to stay in the park. A few days in, the Recreation and Parks Department came by saying they needed to mow the lawn. So the community packed up the tents, let them mow the lawn, and pitched the tents for a third time. Yvette heard about the encampment from a friend. You know, she had said, you know, you got to go over there and put your name on the list. She went over to Mother Brown's to ask about the tents, and she got a number, 18, and a tent of her own. Meanwhile, other resources poured in. A nonprofit came by to help people access their stimulus checks, and another brought mobile showers to the site. Gloria started spending most afternoons and evenings helping out in the park. These young folks, they came out to help. We got more hand sanitizer bottles filled. This time, after the community's persistence and care, the city left the park alone as the encampment and surrounding services grew. The police rolled up on us, but um, they seemed to be interested in how we did this. And um, they're asking questions and actually asking what we need. The city of San Francisco started to help out by collecting trash and bringing lights to the site to make things a little more comfortable. For Gloria, seeing people having somewhere to regularly settle in for the night was deeply satisfying. It's it's emotional because I think the opposite, what if we didn't do this? This is 50 people that would be on the street. And this one particular tenant told me he hadn't felt peace like that in a long time. After a few weeks, Gwendolyn got a call from the city. One day they said, we have trailers where you'll be moving you to these trailers. The people who were living in the tent encampment would be able to move into trailers, some provided by the city, others by the state. Gwendolyn couldn't quite believe it. So I was like, for real? He said, yes, we are. We've noticed the work that you're doing out there, and we finally decided to start helping you. The city parked the trailers down at Pier 94, which sticks out into the San Francisco Bay. Yvette and her boyfriend David moved out of the Toyota RAV4 and into a trailer in the middle of May. Oh my God, when they first gave it to us, I was like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. (laughs) Um, I was so pleased with everything. This is the first time in years that Yvette has had somewhere of her own to come home to every night. You know, to sleep in a bed again and to be able to go to the bathroom again is like, there is, you know, you take those things kind of for granted when you're, when you have a home and you, you know, I did. I never thought I would be in the situation I was in, so um, I... Don't take anything for granted anymore. That's for sure. Just over 90 unhoused people live in the trailers at Pier 94 now. Many of them were in the park before. Mother Browns now provides three meals a day and case management services to the residents of the trailers. Yvette says she has a new sense of stability, but she's not sure yet how long she'll be able to stay in the trailer. I mean, I don't know what's really going to happen once the quarantine is going to, you know, is done. Are we going to be able to still stay here? And if not, you know, how long do we have? And so I need to take advantage of the opportunity that I have this right now. The trailers are an improvement over the tents, cars, and street corners where unhoused people were living before 
and where many still are in San Francisco. But what Gwendolyn, Maria, Michelle, and Gloria want more than anything in San Francisco is a long-term solution for affordable housing. I hope it's not a matter of, okay, number of cases are down, and you all go back to the sidewalks. I hope this is an opportunity to solve homelessness. Thanks to Nina Sparling in San Francisco for bringing us that story. Hello, my name is Sharon Nguyen. Sharon is a 22-year-old nurse's assistant. She's been living for free in a hotel room in Maryland. She's usually based outside of Seattle, but she took a job as a temporary traveling on-call nurse's assistant for senior living homes. She gets a small stipend and a free place to live until June 1st. But her contract is good at least until July 11th. So as of June 1st, Sharon was going to have to start paying to live in the hotel or find another housing situation in a state where she knew no one and everything even Airbnbs, were way out of her price range. Luckily, at the last minute... Uh, I found a travel trailer uh, donated by Michelle, um, and I'm going to pick it up today so that I could stay for about a month until my eight-week assignment ends here in Maryland. My name is Amber Bouton, and I am the proud volunteer president of RVs for MDs. RVs for MDs is an online platform that matches healthcare providers with unused mobile homes in their areas. Through the platform, donors with RVs can lend doctors, nurses, EMTs, and other frontline workers who come into contact with COVID-19 temporary places to stay. The point of this mission is to stop the spread and to help healthcare heroes stay safe and keep their families safe so that we're not spreading it to them so that they can help get people better, you know, and help people recover from COVID. On June 1st, Sharon moved from the hotel and into a trailer so that she could afford to keep working as a traveling healthcare provider. Um, I'm really excited. I'm a little nervous. I just pulled up to the campground, but yeah, I'm going to try to get a map and yeah, I'm I'm just a little nervous, uh, but I'm really excited to have my own space. Sharon will have to pay to park the trailer on a campground, but it's much cheaper than rent. Hi, Michelle. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing good. Wow. I was lost. I was really (laughs) lost. But you're here, so that's good. Yes. Okay, I'm about to go into the travel trailer. Grab the handle on the other side. Okay, yes. All right, I'm stepping in. Wow. Yeah, this is, this is great. This is great. Thank you so much, guys. RV is for MDs was founded by two women, Emily and Holly. Emily's husband is an ER doctor, and he was worried about bringing COVID-19 home to his family. So a friend recommended, you know, how about, you know, you just rent or get an RV and just put it in your driveway. And she said, oh, my gosh, that's a great idea. So Emily put out a call on Facebook for an RV to rent. A woman she has never even met, someone she's never seen a day in her life, Holly Haggard, stepped up and said, 
we have an RV. Of course you can use it. And Emily and Jason said, you know, just let us know how much you need. And Holly and her husband said, no, you know, no charge. And Jason started living in it and it brought such a sense of peace and uh, a much more comfortable way for them to be able to survive right now with him working on the front lines every day and with the kids being able to still see him. His wife can bring dinner and set it on the stoop. And, you know, so he's able to still stay connected to his family and not have the emotional toll of that on top of all of the physical and mental stress of everything, you know, that he's doing every day. Two days after getting the RV from Holly, Emily decided to use Facebook again but this time to create a group that could help other healthcare workers in the area find RVs, too. Soon, volunteers in all 50 states began connecting MDs with RVs. My name's Eric Steinberg. I work at a power plant here in north-central Illinois. My name is Katie Cornell. I am a respiratory therapist. I was out surfing and uh, just on Facebook uh, because I get involved with a few of the RV groups and forums. Something came up and I saw it and Wow, that's really cool. I am currently living with my parents and I have a four-year-old son. We were just creating a distance where he would be with them. And when I come home, it's, you know, take everything off in the garage, put a robe on, go straight upstairs. Um, It didn't take me long to think about it. I saw it and thought, you know what, if there's somebody here in Illinois, I absolutely, I absolutely could do this and made my RV available. I finally said, enough is enough after there were some patients I would see come in through the ER, and then they're ending up in ICU, and here you kind of develop a relationship with these patients, and then I was more nervous for my parents if they got it, not knowing if they would be able to recover. I had gotten an email that said, we have a match for you, and he'll reach out to you, and he sent me a text message later in that day. Everything was within 24 hours. He introduced himself and I think he got it there later on in the week. She's about an hour and a half north of me and I just got in my in my motorhome. Uh, My oldest daughter is 19. She followed behind me in my car and I drove the motorhome up there to uh, where she's at and parked it in her driveway and made sure that I got the water and the electricity hooked up to it. I basically did all the setup and everything right there at her house and handed her the keys. I mean, I didn't see pictures of it beforehand or anything like that. And this huge ginormous thing pulls up and it was just, it was unreal. And then when you walk inside, it has the nice floors, stainless steel appliances. I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous and more than what I was expecting. It was actually very emotional. I remember it very well because she just, Katie was laughing the whole time. It was that kind of in shock kind of laugh. I was in complete shock. I don't know, my mom, as soon as he pulled away, she was crying because I think she was so excited that, you know, I wasn't going to be a threat. Very rewarding to hear that somebody was that appreciative of such a simple act as loaning them something that I had. I I tell my neighbors, I have a lot of toys, but it doesn't do a lot of good to have a lot of toys if you can't enjoy those toys with your friends and your neighbors. So lending stuff out to people is not new to me. The motorhome is is much bigger than a, a snow shovel or a snow blower or my lawnmower, but it was just kind of a natural extension, I guess.
Since then, Katie's parents have gone to spend the summer up north, so she's been able to move back into their house with her son. Eric took his RV back. He's planning on doing a week-long camping trip, and then he'll post it again for another healthcare provider who might need it. When I picked my motorhome up, Katie gave me a, a picture of the day that I handed her the keys. And yeah, I guess I am proud of that. That picture really means a lot to me. Until recently, RVs for MDs operated mostly over Facebook. Soon they'll have a new system and a new website. If you're a healthcare worker, you'll fill out a simple form. Name, email address, city, state, boom. You click submit, it will send you an email. That email connects you to our matching platform. And when they fill out their application in their city and state, they're able to see all of the RVs that are near them. But getting medical workers an RV is just the very complicated beginning. The reality is they were finding all these other obstacles, like their driveway wasn't long enough or it wasn't level or they couldn't park on the street because of their HOA restrictions. And so they really needed to be connecting with each other about, okay, what do I need to do to prepare to live in this RV for the next couple months or 14 days to quarantine or whatever? My name is Sarah Shinneman, and I am a volunteer for RVs for MDs, and I've also created a new Facebook group. It's an info sharing and resource sharing group where they can come and connect to each other and find the resources that they're needing after they get into their loaned RV. I am Warren Shinneman. I'm in 10th grade, and I am working on my Girl Scout Gold Award project where I'm partnering with RVs for MDs to help out these people. So we're focusing on the aftermath after they get matched up with the RVs. And so this can like range from needing to park. Parking spaces is a really big issue. Um, getting electricity, propane, uh, septic tank services. Lauren thinks the work they've done with RVs for MDs could be a model for more than just flattening a pandemic curve. Because when something something crazy like a, a pandemic or a fire um, or a hurricane, any, any of that happens, the initial thing is just like, just like shock. And like these people shouldn't have to worry about like where, what they're going to do next. So like, if they if we can put together a sustainable project where all of these ideas and resources come together that can make it so much easier for these people that have already been through so much they just have to click for one thing and they don't have to figure it out all on their own so far rvs for mds has matched about 1500 medical providers with a home away from home the logo that I created for the info sharing group is a picture of a of a home with an RV or a trailer sitting outside of it. And beneath it, it says, with you, I am home. And it kind of has a double meaning because the RV owners are really the ones that are facilitating them still being able to be at home or at least near their home to see their loved ones. The home is the community that's helping them still be close to home or as close to home as possible as they're still trying to self-isolate. And so many people want to reach out and like share their ideas and their resources with them that they're truly, they're not alone. Now that I've, um, I've had some time to reflect, all I can say is just thank you 
RVs for MDs. I am so relieved to have a place to stay and be able to afford it while on my own. My donors were just amazing. Uh, Michelle and her husband, Jeff, yeah, without them, I'd have to room with a bunch of uh, roommates and having to not be able to minimize my exposure to COVID-19 and vice versa just because I'm working with COVID patients and long-term care facilities. So, um, <sighs> just, <sighs> If you have an RV or are a frontline healthcare worker that needs an RV, you can find all the information you need to participate in RVs for MDs on Facebook. Just search RVs, the number four, MDs. Millions of people in the United States can't be home right now because they're serving time. Definitely didn't think of it as home. I, I thought of it as a place that I was just passing through. That's Lawrence Bartley. He served 27 years in prison, away from home. And when times would get tough, and I was in a situation where, you know, food wasn't available, or I was thrown into solitary confinement, I would always tell myself that I'm just passing through. I'm just passing through. After he was released in 2018, Lawrence went to work for the Marshall Project, a nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization that reports on criminal justice. When I began my work at the Marshall Project, I started as a communications associate. And my first task was to look on our website to see all the content that we create. And what I saw was award-winning journalism about the very lives of people who are incarcerated. And I knew that if I was still on the inside reading this material, it would benefit me in so many ways. So far, more than 34,000 people in prisons across the country have tested positive for the coronavirus. At least 454 have died of coronavirus-related causes. Restrictions inside jails and prisons means it can be difficult to stay six feet apart. Because... The way prisons are structurally designed, it's almost impossible to social distance. Um, there are dorm areas that the cots are three feet apart, so people can't distance themselves. There are people's main source of communication are telephones, and there are telephones that are about um, two to three feet apart. You know, so even where incarcerated people eat, like they go in these huge mess halls where there's eight seats to a table and inside of a mess hall, they can be at one given time, any given time, it could be 200 people in there. And and it's and they're waiting online to get their food. What have you been hearing from people in prisons since the pandemic started? You know, people feel like fish in a barrel being shot by a, a COVID-19 gun, you know, because there's nowhere to escape. And some people feel like, you know, I, I you know, I might have messed up at 16 years old and I was given um, 25, 30 years to do. And I have five years left on my sentence. But for the last 20 years, I turned my life around. I grew up and I'm not the 16-year-old kid I was when I committed this crime. 
and I don't want to die in prison when I'm just at the end. I just want to start my life when I get out because getting out is starting a new life. And I don't want to be robbed of that opportunity. And, and then there's others who have shorter time and, and they believe that, you know, their three or five year sentence has turned into a death sentence. Do you know anyone who has died of coronavirus in prison or jail? Unfortunately, yes. I know, I know a guy who used to call Columbia. He worked in a law library. He was the first person in New York State to die of, of the coronavirus. Um, I know of um, an officer named Goss, who was um, an officer that many incarcerated people like. He, he wrote, he wrote a, a couple of books. He died of the coronavirus as well. So I know people on you know both sides of the, of the staff member and incarcerated people who have passed away. No, sorry. Thank you. Why is it so hard to get news and information to people in prisons, even when there isn't a pandemic? Prison officials, they are hardwired to make sure that their facilities are secure. And getting any information from the outside um, is an opportunity for contraband to be introduced into a facility. They don't want anything that may incite violence. They don't want anything that's overtly sexual or, or anything that would give incarcerated people an idea or, or, or spur them on to challenge the administration in any way. You know, being inside, it's not like a democratic government. It's, it's definitely a, a dictatorship. But knowing how prison administrators feel about prison journalism actually gave Lawrence an opportunity to help. After he joined the Marshall Project, he launched a print publication designed for incarcerated people to read called News Inside. Since it launched last year, it has reached hundreds of jails and prisons across the U.S. Now, with help from a UC San Francisco medical team trained in criminal justice issues, News Inside published a COVID-19 survival guide. Some of their advice sounds familiar. Wash your hands with warm water, wear a mask. But in prison, that looks different. When they would give you that advice, I would add on with a prison adaptation of it. Like, because in, in many prisons across the country, there isn't any hot water inside of the sink. So a person can't wash their hands with warm water. So instead, I, I propose that people use their hot pots or their stingers, and they can use that to make warm water. And for states that not provided masks, you know, I give people alternatives, you know, where the t-shirts is masks, handkerchiefs, or do-rags, or the case of women headscarves and you know I try to provide practical advice like that you know some people are incarcerated inside of cells which is like this long hallway which is a whole bunch of rows of cells like you see on TV and they stacked on top of each other like like a tears and the bars like one wall of your set a person's cell is open and if a person coughs or sneezes that mist permeates throughout the block and so I suggest that people use the plastic that their mattresses come in and cut it open and they create a, like a tarp that they can cover the front of their cell with. You know, the officers can see inside so there's no 
security risk, but I know that that's against the rules, like cover a person's cell bars. So I mentioned that, that it's against the rules, so ask the CO for permission before you do this. To make sure that information is getting to people that need it, Lawrence and the team at UC San Francisco made a video PSA to supplement News Inside's COVID edition. It aired in prisons and jails in at least four states. Welcome to this brief presentation about COVID-19, which was designed specifically for residents of correctional facilities. Now I know many of you are afraid because your worlds have been turned upside down by the coronavirus. I know many of you can't social distance. You may not have access to the proper cleaning supplies. And that further has you on edge. Is getting news to people in prison more difficult during the pandemic? Or is it kind of the same? No, it's, it's definitely more difficult because in reaction to the pandemic, a lot of school areas and libraries are closed and incarcerated people are either locked in their cells or they, are, they have limited movement which is they can only go to the, to the yard for recreation, which is open space with open air, and, and back to their cell blocks. A large part of losing size distribution goes through um, correctional facilities and their libraries. So being that their libraries are closed, some states are telling me that until we get this under control, hold off from setting us losing size. But the, the states that use tablets, we send it through them, and, and through them we have ability to get to 25 states, and people are still getting news inside. The survival guide and the PSA are really new, and getting feedback from incarcerated people has been extra difficult because of the virus. So Lawrence isn't yet sure about how many people it's helped. Right now, he can only keep track of how many facilities are receiving it. You know, is it actually feasible to make the changes that? would be helpful to keep people safe, right? Because it just in so many ways seems like uh, the design, you know, from the shape of a prison to the system that puts people in prison in the first place just isn't adaptable. Prison needs to be reimagined, just a whole, from its own nuts and bolts to its inception, it needs to be reimagined in some way that it's a, something that looks totally different than what it is now. Like not there? Right. (laughs) Some states, like Virginia, have successfully pressured their governors to release incarcerated people who have only a couple years left on their sentences, based on their record, and whether they'd have a safe place to go. But even if they're sent home, they're not necessarily safe. All the people, probably 2.2 million people, maybe some of them don't, but most of them, who are incarcerated, 2.2 million people in the United States want to get home. Home is like this utopia place that we vision in our minds. When you come home during the coronavirus era, home is different. It's not as good as we we thought it would be, but it's better than where we came from. People who have criminal records who get released, they already have this, um, this stigma and they have many, the collateral consequences to the incarceration preclude them from getting jobs and even the jobs that they get. Many of them become essential workers who are out there and face-to-face with the coronavirus every day and stuff like that, if they get that opportunity. So right now I'm sheltering in place inside a place which is definitely my home 
And um, I have more amenities than I ever had in my lifetime, but I still push myself to do other things, to adjust and adapt, to try to make other people better and create new things. And, and I find that not only has it given me a peace of mind, but it's also makes me happy because I can see how it affects other people in a positive way. And that's a blessing. What's the best way that I can help people in prison stay safe right now? <laughs> Maybe uh, you can keep adults mindful of, of who to vote for. Some uh, people have these harsh stances uh, against crime and prison that that disproportionately affect communities of color. And a, a lot of times those translate into tough prison settings that don't allow like like publications like News Inside to get to people who need it. And if we are more mindful of who we vote for, even on a local level, then I think that'll, that some of these things will start panning itself out as the years go on. To be more specific to you, I would stay abreast and you know, read publications like The Marshall Project or don't just rely on on one source that you're reading. Just gotta try to get the truth from somewhere else to kinda to different very different places and then you, as you grow, you, your opinions begin to matter because you can actualize them into tangible ideas. And um, I think that the world would be better if people like you would start that way. You can read more about News Inside at marshallproject.org slash news hyphen inside. And that's our show. Social Distance Assistance is produced and engineered by June Hartcastle Robinson Jones, Kelly Jones, and Molly Bourne. It was created and edited by Nate Toby. Gavin Wright makes it all happen. Digital assistance from Angela Messino and the VPM News Team. Steve Humble is VPM's Chief Content Officer. Music for this week's episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you heard, help us out. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Special thanks to Autumn Rio, Casey Demetz, and Julia Ward-Brandenburg from RVs for MDs. And to Jesse Wright. Members are a fundamental part of VPM. Member support is especially vital right now. Through member support, we're able to provide timely and fact-based information, educational resources for our kids, and informative and entertaining content to keep minds active and engaged. Be a part of what makes VPM possible. Visit vpm.org donate to become a member today. PM.